question as we start our study today. How many of you own what my dad calls a fat TV? That's a non-flat screen TV. How many of you are still watching a fat screen TV? All right, now how many of you have, that thing has bit the dust, and you have joined the rest of us crazies, and you have bought a flat screen TV? How many of you have done that? You have at least one in your house. Come on, raise them real high. I want to see. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. All right, now, here's, here's the test. How many of you have one that is at least 30 inches 30 inches, at least 30 inches. Raise them up. Come on, 30 inches, at least 30. All right, how many have one that's at least 40? Can I get a witness to that? At least 40. How many of you can say, I've got one that's 50 and greater, 50 and greater? All right, 50 and greater. Keep them up. Let's take a look around. These are the blind people. All right. <laughs> Here's the last question. How many of you have one that's 60 inches? 60. Now, look at that, 60 inches. These people are crazy. Isn't it true that when you're at one of those super stores and you go up and you look at those and you think, hey, this 40, 50-inch screen TV, it looks all right, and here you take it up and go, my soul, that's huge. Never looks as big as it looks in your home as it did in the store, correct? Why is it that our society has gotten so enamored by these large screen TVs that have pixels on them that are so sharp and so crystal clear that when you watch the Discovery or the History Channel, it's like you're there? I mean, mine is so crystal clear, it'll blow you away. And it took me a couple of years to save up the money to buy mine, and I waited till it was on sale, and I got a pretty good bargain. But some of you have had them for years. Why do we buy those? I'm convinced that we live in a culture that is a sight-driven culture. We are driven by sight. And I'm convinced that we have become so sight-driven that we have become skeptical to the point that we believe that we must, be, we must see it before we believe it. We must see it before we believe it. And if we want to believe something, we'll tell someone, show it first, then I'll believe it. The opposite is true when it comes to faith. And the opposite is true when it comes to our relationship with God. God tells us to live by faith, not by sight. And yet we have a struggle within us that often loses out because we understand who God is and we understand what his promises are. We know what's in his word, and yet we fail to act on what we know to be true because we're waiting, anticipating, expecting God to show us first before we believe it. We act like that in politics. We act like that in our personal lives. And we've even, we've even sort of veered over to that in the faith that we claim to have in God. And if you don't believe it's true, are you right now enacting on all that you know that God could bring or do in your life right now? And all of us probably answer, if we're honest, would say, you know what? No. Why? Because we live by, by sight and not by faith. The Israelite people here in chapter 3 of the book of Joshua are being asked to live by faith and not by sight. And this was not an easy task for them. It was not something that was going to be easy for them to be able to do because, you see, what was in their way between them and the promised land was something that was so intimidating. It was so overbearing. It was so insurmountable that just the look of it, just the thought of it, probably caused them to quake in their sandals. 
And so we're going to take a look at Joshua chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at faith, and we're going to look at the crossing that is here. And we see faith developing in the lives of God's people in the preparation that is necessary and required for faith. Because if we're ever going to act on faith, we must prepare for the activity of God. Faith is something that prepares for what God is going to do. And the reason I believe why many of us are not acting, stepping on, or living in the faith that we claim, or the faith that we possess in the activity of God, is because we're simply not prepared to go with God. If you're going to go with God, you must prepare to go with God, and you must prepare to allow your faith to enact on that preparation. So what are, or what is, the preparation? or the steps of preparation that are found in the text in Joshua chapter 3. Let's look at, give me the next slide if you would, WR. Let's look at that you must prepare for the supernatural activity of God. And we do so by, first of all, watch closely. They were to watch closely. They were to keep a close eye on the activity of God and to make sure that their actions measured up to the activity of God. They were to watch closely. Notice the text in verse 4 of Joshua chapter 3. Now, 1, 2, and 3, Joshua 3. Joshua gets up early in the morning. He commands the people, two plus million people, two million plus people, to venture together. This was no small task. They've been preparing for this day to move now toward the Jordan. And two million plus people move in a unit, move as one toward the Jordan. And they then camp there. Now, this is not a camp that they're setting that is to be a permanent camp. They're only going to be there a short while. And Joshua tells them, set up a camp that's only going to last three days. That means you don't drive your stake too far into the ground. How many of you have gone camping before? Okay. And you know that the deeper you dig, you know, the anchor of your tent to keep it from falling over, the harder it is to pull it up. So just dig it in deep enough, the stake, to keep your tent up. Because in three days, we're going to be moving well, we're going to camp out right here for right now. And so he tells now the, the, his, his assistants to now go out into the camp, and these are the instructions that he tells them. He says, there shall be a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolic of not only the presence of God, but it not only contains the Ten Commandments as well. It contains the Ten Commandments. It's symbolic of his presence. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go through the camp, indicating when it is time for us to move forward. So keep your eyes open. The ark's coming soon. And when it comes, when you notice it, it's time to pull up stakes and to move. Notice verse 4. Yet, they say, there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. They are to keep a distance from the Ark of the Covenant of about 1,000 feet. And the reason they are to do so is because, you see, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be taken out of the Tent of Tabernacle, and it's going to be now in a public setting, and God wants to make sure that they do not treat this Ark of the Covenant, which is a holy piece of furniture, in a way that would be careless or flippant. And so they're saying, this, this article, this Ark of the Covenant is so holy, and it contains my presence. Do not treat my presence lightly. Don't be flippant about my presence nor my activity. You know, there is a danger, I think, sometimes for us to sort of laugh off the activity of God, to sort of treat flippantly the presence of God, and to think that God doesn't really care about that sort of activity, but he does. And he tells them, hey, the ark's going to come out of the tent of the tabernacle, and it's going to lead you 
Be careful how you treat it. But notice he says, I want you to be disciplined in that I want you to follow the ark as it leads you into the promised land exactly 1,000 feet behind it. In other words, the ark of the covenant is to lead them. It is to lead the procession. The presence of God is going to lead the procession. And they are going to go in a place, notice it says, that they have never been before. How many of you came to church the way you've always come before? You always come that way. You can set your clock by it. You don't even think about it. And, and the danger is that you get here one Sunday morning, and as you drive into the parking lot, you don't remember how you got here. Has that ever happened to you? Sure it has. Come on. And you wonder, did I hit anybody? Did I run any red lights? How did I get here? I don't remember because you've done it so many times. But God is saying to these people, you have never been into Canaan before. You have never been to the place that I'm about to take you. And so because you've never been to Canaan, because you've never been into the promised land, you must stay behind me all the way because I'm about to take you somewhere where you've never been before. I think some of us treat our faith as if we've always been there. There's nothing new. There's no discoveries. It's the same old, same old, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, week after week after week. And we just expect and anticipate, you know what? I've been here before. I've been there before. But I'm convinced God wants to take you and he wants to take us as a church somewhere we've never been before. And because we've never been there before, we better follow the Lord. Because you know what happens when you go somewhere you've never been before and you don't have a garment? You get lost. And who likes to get lost? And so he says, follow me carefully, and when you do, you'll discover the knowledge of my will and my ways. So watch closely. Withdraw completely, he says. That's the second step in preparation. Withdraw completely. Notice what he says in the text, verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua, spokesman of the Lord, says to the people, consecrate yourselves. There is a purposeful act in that they are to consecrate themselves now. Consecrate yourself. Pull yourself away from all of those distractions, from all of those distortions. Purify your life in such a way that every aspect of your thoughts, of your hearts, of your lives are so holy and so right with me that there is nothing that would hinder, that would obstruct, or would hurt my intimate love relationship with you. Separate yourselves from anything as you prepare for what I want to do. You know, there is a preparation that we must have as a church and as individuals if we're going to go with the Lord. For God requires from his people holiness, purity, consecration. And if there's anything in individual lives or in the corporate life of the church that would be a hindrance to the activity of God, we must consecrate ourselves. And consecration simply means I repent of what I have done. I resist and I remove that obstruction. And I then continue to walk in the righteousness that is required in order to go with God. Consecration. Here it's a purposeful act, but it's a, per it's a personal act. He said, consecrate yourselves. It'd be really easy for me to go up to Andy and say, Andy, I've seen some sins and some things in your life that are hurting your relationship with God, and this is what you need to do, and you need to get consecrated. What would you probably say to me in return? Yeah, that's what I thought. He'd probably say, well, pastor, I've noticed some things about you too, and you need to consecrate your life, and I'm going to help you clean your life up. 
you need to clean your act up. No, what we need to do is clean our individual lives up. It's our responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the guidance of the Word of God, to look in the mirror and to see ourselves for the the sins and the hindrances and the failures and the shortcomings and the things that would obstruct our journeying together and to confess those things and to repent of those things and to reconcile whatever we need to with God and with others so that we can go together as one. It's not only a personal act, but notice in this text, it's a present act. He said, consecrate today. Why? Because tomorrow is the day of our crossing. There's an urgency here to what he's asking them to do. It's not something that they can delay. It's not something they can put off until tomorrow. It's something they must do presently at that very moment now. Why? Because he knows that tomorrow they're going to go and they're going to go with God. And it is an urgent matter that they consecrate themselves now. Do not delay with what you know right now that is hindering and hurting your walk and your relationship with God. Because that which you're holding on to is a hindrance in not only in your own personal life, but is a hindrance to the body of Christ, the church, as we are moving forward and advancing into the place and to the purpose that God has for us. It's an individual mandate. It's a personal requirement for us to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to bring forth those things in our hearts from within us that are impure, that are improper, and to confess those and in repentance seek reconciliation so that we might together move as one. Withdrawal. He says, not only do I want you to watch closely and withdraw completely, but I want you to wait patiently. Notice again, he says in verse 7, he says, And the Lord said to Joshua, As for you, command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. They were to stand still in the Jordan. I mean, you take a look at that, and I, I sort of scratched my head, and I said, okay, Israel's done a lot of waiting. They have spent 40 years in the wilderness. They have spent two years on the eastern side of the Jordan waiting to cross over to the west, to Canaan, to the promised land. They have prepared now for three days. They have ventured now up to the very brink, to the very doorstep of the promise as they're standing there camping just, just on the other side of the Jordan about to cross over. And now they're told once again that the Ark of the Covenant is going to precede them into the water and they are going to have to stand still as God stops the water so that they can cross over. And I got to thinking about that for minute how many of us hate to wait i've seen you drive some of you drive like crazy people and you get on my tail inches away because i'm in a space that you think is yours because you want to wait one second to get to the light before i do and they and then you're right behind them in the light and you go those people are idiots they spent all that gas to get up here and we're right together again We don't like to wait. And because we don't like to wait on God, because God's timing and our timing are not the same, his timetable is different than ours, our expectations are that God do it today, and we just, quite frankly, get tired of waiting. And so as a result of that, we take matters into our own hands. We grab the bull by the horns. We grab the steering wheel, and we rev it up, and we're going to make things happen because that's what we do. And how often do we get ahead of God? The, the other end of that is, is also bad. We wait and we wait and we wait, and all of a sudden God says it's time to go, and we just sort of, you know, well, let me think about it a minute. 
And God and his spirit get so far ahead of us that we lag behind to the point where we miss the opportunity, the open window, and the open door, and we fail to move with God. There are two variables here, two bookends that are wrong. We must keep in step with the spirit of Christ as he leads us, as he determines and dictates how we should go, and we should move as quickly as he determines, not according to our expectations nor our timeline. And we must wait. Now, patiently. I hate that word patient. I'm not very patient, are you? So as we wait patiently, we're finally to walk obediently. Notice what he says, watch closely, withdraw completely, wait patiently, walk obediently. Verse 9, and Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. We have a a three-step requirement to obedience here. There are three steps to their obedience. He says, first of all, notice he says, come here. There is a, an aspect in which they are to respond to the call of God. They must leave where they are to come to where the prophet and the message is going to be delivered. So there must be a response on our part, a willingness to respond to, to the voice of God. Not only is there a willingness to respond, but there's a willingness to receive. There needs to be a receptivity on the part of the people of God to hear what God wants to say. And I think sometimes we have a problem with what God wants to say because God's going to ask us and require of us something that we don't, we don't really think we can accomplish and achieve. Or maybe it's something unexpected and undesirable. And what God was going to say through Joshua was something that they couldn't have, in their wildest dreams, have ever concocted. It would have, it would, it, you know, sometimes committees are, 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 are people who, who, who tried to design a horse and came up with a camel. You know what I'm talking about? If they had gotten a committee together and said, how should we tackle this problem? How should we overcome this barrier? There's this river here and it's in our way. How do we do that? They would have never come up with the instructions nor the directions that God has through Joshua in the verses that precede this. Would have never done that. And yet they were to be receptive of what God wanted to bring into their lives. And that receptivity were then would only be possible because they recognized that he is not only their God, but he is the Lord, their God. You know, it's, it's different when he's my God than when he's my Lord. Because when my God is not my Lord, then I'm in the driver's seat. When God is not my Lord, I'm in control. But when God is my Lord, he's in the driver's seat. When God is my Lord, he's the one in control. He gets to determine and to dictate exactly how it is to be done and when it is to be done and the way it is to be done. And he leaves me completely out of the equation. I'm not only just a stander by who's waiting on God to work, but I am then to join God in what God is doing. He doesn't join me. I join him. Why? Because he's not only my God, but now he's my Lord. And the word Lord means that he's in control. Not only is he in control, but there is nothing that can thwart, stop, hinder or prevent the Lord's will from being done. All obstacles come down. All barriers are overcomable. All enemies are defeated then because he is Lord. And whatever he determines and whatever he wills, he is Lord of all in the world that we live in today. Even when they don't profess him to be Lord, he's still sovereign and he's still on the throne. And he's still Lord. So here we have the preparation. Preparation to watch closely. It's to withdraw completely. It's to wait patiently. And it's to walk obediently. 
They're preparing for the activity and for the miracle of God to take place. And that preparation now leads then to an execution because who of us would prepare and prepare and prepare for the big game but never then play the big game? It would be senseless and useless for us to anticipate and prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare and never actually get in a game. And here is where faith now is executed. Here is where the preparation pays off. And in their preparation, I want you to know the execution in that the execution faith always proceeds beyond the natural. There is something that's going to happen here. There's a natural phenomenon that is going to break the law of physics, and the supernatural is going to happen. And what happens is not natural. It is unnatural for this to happen. And yet it does. Why? Because of God's activity and their faith in him. Notice their commitment here as it is established in God. They, they, their faith is something that is done. You know, in the English language, faith is a, is a noun, isn't it? I know that. Every time when I say the faith is a verb, I always have some sweet person in the back saying, Brother Boswell, I hate to tell you, but faith is not an, a verb, it's a noun. I understand that. But in our faith, faith is not a noun, faith is a verb. Because the Bible says that without works, there is no faith. You see, faith is something that we do. It's not just something we believe. And I think some of us get that confused a little bit. Because if I say I have faith in God and it doesn't transcend nor transform the way that I live my life and the things that I seek to do in following him, then what good is that faith? You see, our faith takes over in our lives and it transcends our humanity and it transforms our lives and it causes us to move in faith. It is a verb. It is an action. It is something that we do for him. So here is this execution described for us in the form of a commitment. What is their commitment? Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. Notice their commitment is first to a devotion to each other. Notice the people set out, the people set out, the people, the people, the people. Not one individual, not five, not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand, not a million, but two million plus together as one set out together. It was a devotion in which it was all or nothing. It was everyone or no one. It was all of them together. And we know that wherever the Spirit of the Lord is active, the people of God are one. And wherever there, there's a group of people that are not one, there's an absence of the activity and the work of the Spirit. And here they are devoted to one another to go together as a family, as one unit. The people, the people, not only notice the people, they set out from their tents. Notice their determination. Their determination here is to leave their present condition and and, and, and their present reality to something else. I mean, they've been camped here now for about two years. They've been preparing for three days. And now they're told to move over here where the river is flowing. And they're told, don't camp out here too long because we're going to be moving again. They're determined now to cross over. They're determined to follow the Lord. But not only notice their determination, but their decisiveness. And they are decisive in that they are moving toward the obstacle, not away from it. It's almost indicative here of David when he was called by the Lord to face Goliath. He didn't wait for Goliath to come him to come to him. He was decisive in that he moved toward Goliath. He moved toward the obstacle. 
They were decisive in that part. Notice that that their tents to pass over the Jordan. They came to the Jordan. It was a decisive act on their part. It was strategic in that they were moving toward that which was preventing them to, to their inheritance. And notice as they were burying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. Notice their dependability. They were doing exactly what God had asked them to do in the previous message. He said, follow the Ark of the Covenant. And they were following the Ark of the Covenant. They were dependable people. They were committed to following exactly the directions and the directives of God. They weren't going to veer to the left or to the left, to the right. They were going to follow exactly wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, they would go. That was their commitment. Once they established their commitment, notice their convictions. Their convictions are going to be tested just like your convictions are also going to be tested. Verse 15, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a deep, in a heap very far away. How far away? As far as Adam. That's about 30 kilometers north of Jericho. 30 kilometers north, there was a flood, and the city that beside Jerathan, nobody really knows where that was, but some believe it was 20 kilometers beyond that, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea were completely cut off. Notice what happens in this beautiful passage. Here we have the people of God are standing now at, 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 the, at the brink here of the river. They're standing here, and the Ark of the Covenant is preceding them. And the river is flowing, and the current is, is massive because of the melting snow on the mountains. It's coming down below, and it's flowing north to south, and it's going into the, to the Dead Sea. And the reason why it's dead is because it never gives out anything. It only collects things. And if you're ever one who receives but never gives, you're as dead as the Dead Sea. And the river is, the current is amazing. How many of you saw some of the, 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 the footage of what happened in Colorado just a week or two ago? It doesn't take much water to take a a large car that you may possibly in and just sweep it away. Well, imagine the Jordan River like that. Just gushing the danger of even thinking about trying to cross it on a a boat, much less by foot. you got to be crazy. So they're standing here. And water is running, and, and it's, it's wider than the, I mean, it's, it's maybe two or three times wider than this auditorium, and just a gush of water, and, and the threat that it might bring upon your life, and as it's running, you're standing here, and you, you, you just stare at it for a second, and you go, this is crazy, this is insane, this is insanity, what am I doing here, trusting God, and all of a sudden, you just step out, and you put your foot in there, that's what the priest did. He stepped up, and he got his foot wet. Some of you don't want to get your feet wet. And he put his foot in the water, and as soon as his foot got wet, that was the act of faith. You follow me? He put his foot in the water, and as soon as the hand of God went, wham, and acted as a dam preventing the water, and it stood up. Like a dam. There was no dam there. There was no, no, no concrete. There were no, no stones. It was the hand of God that was there. And all they could see was water. You follow me? And the, the land was dry. 
It was dry in an instant. It was dry. And the second step, the priest stood on dry land. And the miracle took place. And they secured the miracle of God. And the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the very center of, the, of there. And they stood there holding the Ark of the Covenant. And this massive water was just like this. And all of a sudden, now the people start to cross over. It was, it was phenomenal. But, but think about it for a minute. That first step, their convictions were being tested. Do you really believe in what God said? Now, we live in a culture that's going to continue to test our convictions. And there's a difference between what we think we believe and a conviction, because a conviction is non-negotiable. A, convi a conviction doesn't change with a culture. A, a conviction doesn't change when my government says so or when it's all of a sudden politically incorrect. And I'm convinced that we're living in one of the largest, the greatest sexual revolutions in America today. And they are constantly trying to redefine our convictions about morality. It's not just a battle about homosexuality. It, well, it was not a battle about, about, about uh, life before death, or, or I mean life at conception, and we lost that, and then we lost the, 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 the homosexual thing. It wasn't just about that. Now it's become about don't give me any limits about what I can do to my body. That's where we're headed. It's a Sodom and Gomorrah. America is on the verge of becoming a Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't believe that? Saw it on the, on the news here uh, this week. I have not seen the video, nor do I want to see the video, of Madonna coming out with her sex tape. Miley Cyrus shocked the world with her sexuality on the platform. And then says, don't judge me by what I choose to do with my... Well, let me tell you something. This Bible does. Now, I'm not the judge, nor the jury, nor the executioner, but I have certain convictions that are non-negotiable. And what's wrong with the church today is that we have what we call convictions that are, that, are, that are negotiable because we're trying to reach people. We don't want people to feel guilty when they come into the place of worship or to feel as if there's something wrong in their life. There are convictions that will be tested in your life. And you've already seen them in this, in this room because we in here are of a different culture than the one in the 10 o'clock. Not all of us, but some of us are. And we've seen the changes. But those changes have altered some of our convictions, haven't they? Because it's hard for us to have a conviction against homosexuality when all of a sudden our child claims to be a homosexual. It's hard for us to take a stand against abortion when all of a sudden our child or our grandchild has had an abortion. It's hard for us to take a stand on alcoholism when our son or our daughter is an alcoholic. And yet, our convictions are going to be tested. And their convictions stood the test. They believed in God. Do we really believe in God as individuals and as a church? That we are, as Emmanuel, God's people, and that God is going to, in his presence and in his time, move us to where he wants us to be? Is that truly a conviction? Or is that a conviction that's based upon some sort of 
expectation that is not God's or maybe some person or some thing or some program or some activity or some performance that must be done in order for God then to bless it. I don't know about you, but there's nobody that could stop that water other than God. And there's no one that can transform your life or transform his church other than God. And when God's people step out and we trust God and we may get our feet wet, but we believe God, watch out. Because we'll finally get what God wants from us, not only individually, but us corporately as his body. Notice their confidence is lifted when their conviction is put to the test. Verse 16, and the people passed over opposite Jericho, and now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. I don't know about you, but in this incredible, I mean, all of a sudden there's an incredible victory. Now, some of your football teams had victory last, uh, last Saturday, yesterday. Some of us didn't fare so well. But I don't know of anything that doesn't instill confidence in a football team right after an astounding victory. There's nothing that instilled confidence more in the lives of, of the men who were supposed to be men of valor who wouldn't face Goliath until David stepped out and he confronted Goliath and with a single stone knocked the man down, chopped his head off, held it up, and the army, incredibly confident now, came running down and the enemy fled. These people, man, were so confident at the activity of God from this point on that they believed that nothing was going to stop them. Imagine now the moment of the miracle. You're walking now as a part of that 2 million-plus man, woman, child, baby thing. As you're walking down looking, and here's a, 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 a wall of water, man, and it's just, it goes as far as the eye can see, and God's hand is like, and all you see, and you're just walking by, and it's dry. You think when you get the other side, how do you think they did? How do you think they reacted? How do you think they acted? Well, they were Baptist. Praise God. Don't get too excited now. It'll be okay. You think that's how they acted? I know the Charlotte Durkee over here is starting to move around a little bit. You need to stand still over there when we're worshiping, okay? I shouldn't have pointed her out. I'm going to get in trouble now for that, I'm sure. Do you think they were dancing, celebrating? You ever seen a victory of a Super Bowl? You ever seen one of those? Do you think it was like a Super Bowl victory? They couldn't contain themselves. <laughs> you know? They weren't afraid of anybody after that. Their confidence was lifted. There's nothing like stepping out in faith, trusting God, and watching God act that doesn't lift your confidence. Not in yourself, but in him. And if we ever dare to put our confidence in ourselves and not in him, we fall flat on our face every time. Only God could hold those waters back. Only God can do what he needs to do in your life, in my life, and in our life together. And our confidence is in him. And in no one else, nothing else, no program, no Nashville, 
know nothing except God. And when our confidence is in God, all things become possible. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. This is Michaela Davis. If you're a friend or a family member of hers who's here to support her this morning, can you stand so we could recognize you? <laughs> Michaela's come to uh, profess her faith in Christ through baptism. Uh, and so we believe that this is a symbol of her salvation, which she said she prayed to receive Christ in her bedroom one night. And uh, her life is different now because of his presence there. So Michaela, let me ask you, have you professed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. It is my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. This is Trish, and Trish comes this morning to give her testimony of baptism. Her brother-in-law and sister-in-law started attending several years ago because of the change in their lives. Her husband saw that change. He made a change, and because of those changes, Trish comes today saying, I've made that change. Trish, if you ask Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your Lord, and is it your desire to be marked as his follower from this day forward? Yes. Because of your decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs> <laughs> 